you for tuning in to another one of our podcasts. Our guest this evening is recently obtained the title of Dr. Ruan Cox. Hey, Ruan. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you for coming out and speaking to us this evening. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you guys for picking up the tab. <laughs> You're most welcome. So usually the the idea is to start off by giving everybody a little bit of an introduction to you. So why science and why, of all things, a graduate degree in it? Well, um, science has always been something that's really interested me. Um, I, like to st- I like to share the story that I came from very humble beginnings and my parents worked blue-collar jobs. My mom worked um, in a clean, to clean up a local office, a local insurance agency. And one of the magazines that would always be in the local insurance agency was Popular Science. And I'd always flip through it while she was cleaning. And I was trying to get away from helping. And um, I, would, I would discover new things, interesting things, interesting inventions, um, a new robot or an electric car or something that just really interests me. And I was always fond of asking questions and I was always encouraged. And so as I traveled through school, high school, I'd always excel in science classes and I got a chance to get involved in research at UF when I was an undergrad. And up until then I'd always wanted to uh, be a dentist. Even though it didn't really appeal to me, I wanted to do something that my parents would be proud of. And so after I had that experience with that research, I kind of accepted the fact that this is what I wanted to do and pursued it and did what I wanted to do and did everything for me. And so that's how I ended up with science. Pursuing a graduate degree was only the next step to kind of coming full circle with what I want to do and my goals. And five and a half years later, here I am. Very good. So give us a little bit of a background on the project that you worked on, because obviously all grad students end up focusing on one particular subject. Mm -hmm. Well, I am a respiratory immunologist, I guess, (laughs) and um, my project centered around natural molecules that our body makes that may be helpful in the resolution of injury. And so the disease model that I particularly focused on was called acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress. It can be caused by a lot of insults or a lot of different causes such as pneumonia or if something uh, if you tried to if you if something went down the wrong tube or if you um, had a viral infection, um, a bacterial infection, too much oxygen, etc. And so what I was tasked with was trying to figure out what are some of the, our body's own molecules that we produce that kind of fail in the disease and allows the, us to not to recover properly? And um, I found one of those molecules, our body, makes, our body stores a lot of omega-3s in the linings of our lungs. And when we have an inflammatory event, those omega-3s get converted to molecules called resolvins. But whatever is naturally produced isn't enough, and our, the inflammatory event kind of overtakes the um, natural repair mechanisms and you continue to have injury. So what I tried to do was to find out whether supplementation of those resolvins would enable us to have faster resolution of injury. injury. And indeed I found that in many different cases not only do you have 
faster resolution of injury, you have decreased inflammation, you have increased lung function, and you have less death of the cells that are important in your lung function as well. Okay. So this actually translates to something that is potentially already clinically relevant. Yes, yes, yes. And, and the molecules themselves have been implicated in, um, in uh, disease homeostasis for diabetes, for um, other respiratory complications such as asthma, eye disorders, and are also now being tested in pain management as well. Now, I think the... the expression inflammation is used an awful lot and I'm not sure that people really understand what it means so give us like a, a brief pricey on what inflammation actually is. Uh, inflammation can be characterized by a lot of different ways. Um, swelling, um, a change in temperature at the site of the injury, a change in color you get a redness at the site of injury and so what's really happening is your body is uh, alerting you that something's wrong. It's walling off the area um, to make sure that other things can't get into um, and kind of exacerbate the problem. And then it's also alerting other cells that may be involved in kind of the rescue phase or um, the repair and uh, recruitment phase to the area so that they can um, at, after the injury has taken place and after the inflammation has taken place so they can, can begin to repair it and return you back to your normal state. Okay. So today I realized that your last name is Cox mm -hmm. and you work on inflammation. So explain <laughs> to the audience why this very nerdy thing is incredibly funny to me. Well, there's a molecule called uh, Cox2 that is um, pretty important and pretty interesting and, and, a, and a big molecule that's involved in inflammation and actually what a lot of people don't understand is as much as it's involved in inflammation it's also involved in the alleviation of said inflammation um, through some of the same molecules that I work on. So you've finished your graduate studies and unlike the, the path that most people take which is to take on a postdoctoral um, role You've gone a slightly different direction. Now explain to us why that is. Okay. Um, well, I have decided to take an internship in the uh, Intellectual Property Office at the Moffitt Cancer Center, which is right here at the University of South Florida campus. And I always thought while I was doing graduate school that my personality was a little bit different. I always thought that my interaction, my wanting and willingness to interact with people was something that was equally as important as my want to discover um, how things work, especially in the scientific arena. It kind of made me investigate some other avenues that scientists may take. Um, a lot of people like to think that we are stuck in the ivory towers of publisher parish or writing a lot or um, always having to um, be in a lab and wear lab coats but there's many other avenues that scientists are involved in and I wanted to kind of explore what life was like outside of the bench and so it led me to a internship in the intellectual property office where I get to see new discoveries that people make and analyze whether those new discoveries are novel and new and if they are encourage them to try to commercialize those opportunities so someone can mass produce them 
and then make them marketable to a patient or make them marketable to uh, the target population. So what do you see as um, issues for new graduate students coming through? Because there, there was a time way back when, you know, where principal investigators of projects didn't have to worry so much about where the money was coming from. Right. And I don't know if new graduate students coming in understand mm-hmm. the, the perils of you know, what they're undertaking and right. how hard it can be. Right. I think, as with anything, if you can look at something and have the same exuberance that you would a five-year-old child seeing something for the first time, I think that that is the way that you can really be happy, be engaged, be focused in what you're doing. And oftentimes now you see that you have these students that come in by year four, year five, and hopefully not, but year six, you see this jaded nature of what is going on. And I think, yes, we all have our ups and downs um, as scientists. And I wouldn't reclassify myself as not a scientist because I'm not purely doing the natural bench work. But I think that people should be aware of the climate that science has been forced to undertake. And when you see your PI have to stay till 7, 8, 9 o'clock because they're writing grant after grant after grant, or when you see your principal investigator have to continue to deal with managing a laboratory at a young or at an, at, an, at an advanced and established age, but also having to navigate the politics that are arranged in the arena, you can't help but kind of zero in on that because there's no protection from it anymore due to the consistent stress that you have to be involved in. I think what a lot of things that aren't really availed to the graduate students that are coming in is the multifunctional nature that you have to be able to navigate in science. You know, you can't just be a good researcher, you have to be a good salesman, you have to be a good public speaker, you have to be an entrepreneur of sorts, and you have to know how to sell yourself. And I think that if we can connect in that way and kind of get a multidisciplinary approach, especially in the early parts of our scientific career, if we also can take the time to go into maybe once or twice go into the clinics of the disease population that we're actually trying to affect and see what they're dealing with, then we get that empathy, then we get that passion, then we get re- re- then we find that exuberance. And so people have to challenge themselves. Definitely they have to be aware of the challenge. And they have to be happy. There's no right or wrong answer. There's just your answer. And yeah. they have to know that. No matter who's telling you, your boss, your chair, you have to be fulfilled. Yeah. So did you get to meet any patients while you were doing your degree? I um, didn't. I had the wonderful opportunity, however, to work in a clinical department uh, while I was doing my research. And so we always had 7 o'clock meetings with the clinical researchers once every uh, weekly. And then we also had to present once a semester to the doctors um, in a seminar type fashion and so you kind of get that clinical exposure I did have a friend she is at MD Anderson Cancer Center which Mm -hmm. is one of the biggest cancer centers and what they do is they spend a semester going on rounds with doctors oh wow and I think that that is amazing because she said that she literally went there and saw the patient and saw the doctor counsel the patient 
exhibit great bedside manner, tell the patient everything that they wanted to hear, and then come out and consult with the nurse. And the nurse said, well, what are we going to do? And he literally said, I don't know. Wow. And that, her just telling me that story was just, it was heartbreaking, but it also implored me to be focused on what I was doing, even from an aspect of intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So final question for me would be, what would be your dream job? Uh, One of the things that I always loved, absolutely loved, is teaching. I got an opportunity to teach three classes when I was doing my PhD. And I taught at the undergrad level, I taught at the master's and PhD level, and it was amazing. Um, and so I would really like to um, get involved in an opportunity um, in business development or government relations, um, the two avenues that I'm most interested in. I'm most interested in um, networking with companies. I'm also more interested in policy and the laws and legislations that we pass that regulate science as a whole. That's mm-hmm. not just medical science, environmental science, solar power, energy, um, biofuels, things of that nature, education in STEM fields. You know, I read a book. It's called Unscientific America. Mm-hmm. And it talks about the scientific Ill- illiteracy rates that we have here. You know, 50% of Americans, I think it's 40 to 50% of Americans think that the earth was made less than 10,000 years ago. There, uh, we have a 40% decrease in the amount of papers that publish scientific sections, where we used to have those type of sections, and now you have to go to the Wall Street Journal or those type of high-impact periodicals to be able to see information presented in the lay space. And so when we have things like this, like these podcasts, or uh, in Washington, D.C., they do similar things at cafes, and we have opportunities to encourage the people who may not necessarily be well-versed in the field of science, but are affected by everything that goes on in the biomedical scientific space, I think that that's when you can really make an impact because those people are the voters, those people are the consumers, those people are the patients. Um, and they may be your subjects as well if you do clinical research. So, I mean, we, we, we got to understand that and we got to get the word out and we got to do more to get people to buy into what, what, what is going on here and what... Um, kind of science is doing I think those sometimes we're we're preaching to the converted uh-huh. so a lot of what we do is is only going out to people who are already somehow interested in science right and um, the question is how do you reach beyond I mean maybe maybe beer and science is the way to go maybe uh-huh. just someone who comes out for a pint will decide sure I can sit around and listen to this for a little while right but um I think that's that's one of the things that really holds us back is that people who are interested are interested and they'll be completely gung-ho and they're already reading the articles, they're right. already involved, they're already watching the nature shows. Right. How do you get to that potentially 80% of the population? You know, that you know what I'll say about that though <laughs> is that when I got an opportunity, and thank you for this, when I got an opportunity to be part of the first Pine of Science as just a moderator... I'm here and I'm moderating other people coming up to speak. And I have to admit that I'm so in tune with the biomedical science that's going on. But when I have a meteorologist or a, or a marine biologist, I'm not as in tune. And then I become that layperson. Yep. And for me, 
those interdisciplinary avenues, such as the festival that's put on every year, those are good opportunities to expose even people who are already connected in one avenue or another to kind of get out there and invite their friends. And it just kind of, everybody just has to keep on plugging away. It's kind of almost, almost like we talked about with the whole cure thing. Mm -hmm. We can't cure it. We can't find just one way. We got to keep on chipping away and encourage other people in their own avenue to chip away. And, you know, one base at a time, we will hit that home run. So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a slow process, but we got to understand where we make an impact in our own respective spaces and carve out our space and keep on making it broader year by year, day by day, podcast by podcast, what have you. So I think what's, what's going on here is amazing. I've already been so enlightened. And so um, getting a job like that, but also lending my time and talent and effort to teach at a local uh, college. And it, I, I, I wouldn't even want to do it for a payment. I just want to do it for the sure um, love of just teaching someone. So, switching from my questions, mm -hmm. David, who's not here this evening, has uh, kindly tweeted some for us, uh -huh. actually on the subject of Twitter. Uh -huh. As someone who's interested in communication, uh -huh. do you use Twitter, and if not, why not? I, it's, a, it's a rather childish reason, but I don't have a Twitter. It's not that I don't want to have a Twitter, I just haven't found a cool nickname yet. <laughs> <laughs> So the only and, thing holding you I'm, back is a handle. I'm, I'm lobbying everyone that if they have a good Twitter handle or Instagram handle, um, to please send it to me. Um, <laughs> Dr. Cox will automatically get you a no. But, <laughs> but that is the only thing holding me back. But yes, I, if I got on Twitter, I'd be tweeting a bunch. Um, and I'm always a fan of uh, live Twitter feeds when you have podcasts or when you have seminars or things like that. It's, it's, I'm, I'm a big fan of the interface of technology. Another one he asked was, and this is probably a little bit flippant, but so how many illnesses could we deal with if we all had an aspirin every morning? <laughs> you know, we probably could deal with a lot. I think a baby aspirin goes a long way. And that's actually a big part of my research was aspirin, and we talked about this Cox molecule earlier, is the reason why those resolve in molecules work so well is because they work when you take aspirin and they change the cox molecule and they switch it from more of an inflammatory molecule to more of an anti-inflammatory and resolutionary molecule there's a lot of different molecules that our our body makes in responses to aspirin that help with homeostasis not not only headache not only fever not only um, pain management and different things like that but also just regulating uh, your tissues back to their normal state. I think you can deal with a lot. It's actually quite countless, and I think we're still figuring it out. Certainly pain management, certainly Alzheimer's, certainly respiratory diseases. Um, oddly enough, infection as well. So, so go take a baby aspirin every morning. <laughs> yes, unless you've got problems with clotting. Or things yes, like. yes, maybe Let's, you might not want to do that. Yes, you should probably avoid that. <laughs> and this one's from Arturo. Have you heard of biohacking? People modifying their bodies to get extra senses or have more accurate measurements of their biology or lifestyle? Uh, biohacking in that terminology, maybe not, but I, I think that people gaining information is something that I am very supportive of, very supportive of. You can say that our wearables are biohacking us. Mm -hmm. You can say that genetic testing is biohacking us. 
And so a company that is pretty hot on the market right now, 23andMe, you can send them your uh, genetic test results and they can tell you some of the things that you're predisposed to. And I think that we are now in an information age where we are gathering up all the information that we can and we are at times, depending on how adamant you are about your health, very present with our clinicians and our physicians about what we think we have rather than just their knowledge gains from experience or the books. And what we're going to enter soon is an intelligence age where we really start to understand ourselves personally. And that personalized medicine, if you want to label it biohacking, if you want to label it being knowledgeable about your own self, if you want to label it getting a competitive advantage, um, I think it's cool. I think it's pretty interesting. Well, the FDA didn't think it was very cool in saying that they don't want people to start self-diagnosing. And this is one of the problems with these things, I uh -huh. think. Um, but not just that. Does it not creep you out a little bit that potentially your genetic profile with regards to disease is out there and when you're relying on an insurance service to cover your healthcare costs, does it not really creep you out? Yes and no. I mean, the thought of Big Brother being there in anything that we do can always lend itself to be a little bit creepy. But being on someone else's whim by, by their knowledge is also a little bit, um, it's, it's also, it's never something that I've really been a part of. I've always, like I said before, I've always thought that we should ask more questions. I've always thought that we should be knowledgeable. And I think that realistically, who to tell you more about you than you? And if we could have an, an, an item or a test that can tell us more about ourselves that we can understand, mm -hmm. then that is what I think is most important. We shouldn't have a test that then we have to then go to the doctor for them to be able to read it. No, we should have something that we can understand. So our Fitbit should tell us a little bit more. Our Google Watch should tell us a little bit more. Our Apple Watch should tell us a little bit more. Google's coming out with glucose contacts that can uh, determine your blood sugar level. They have um, smart fibers that are being developed where you can be able to detect sweat. What's, what's, the, what's in your sweat and how are you sweating? Those are the type of things that I think coming in the, you know, into the intelligence age that I think is going to be pretty cool and I'm pretty excited about it. Some people may get creeped out about it because they think there's too much information. I don't want to know that much about myself because I might be a hypochondriac or I might be prone to um, overanalyze or do things a little bit too much, but I'd rather know than not know. Yeah. I suspect in those cases, those people have already got problems that, yeah. you know, having a wearable <laughs> is not going to change very much. Exactly, exactly. So if you could have any gadget invented right now, what would you want? Um, if I could have any gadget invented right now, it'd be um, a clone of myself. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this is, um, everybody wants this, but I think now we have the electric car. If I can get any gadget that would be invented right now, I would want to... I, can I get two? The hologram telephone and the oh. flying car. I, you know, I just think that would be so cool. I think when you look at the HP commercials or the Microsoft is now doing this with real senses, you can actually gesture on top of your laptop and move things around and spread them around and do really innovative things now that... Um, and, and that's also buoyed by the invention of 3D printing and things like that. People yeah. really don't know how old that is. Yeah. So um, if I could have any gadget to be the, the holographic telephone, 
or I would definitely choose the flying car. If there was one thing you could change in academia, what would that be? Once again, I, I think if there is one thing that I would change about academia, I think sometimes the focus can be, I think it, it needs to be less of who you rub shoulders with, and unfortunately that's pervasive in every aspect and every field, and you're always going to have individuals looking out for each other, but I'd bring back the, the, the genuine and natural feeling of, of being able to discover something and being able to work on something that's, that's, that's worthwhile. Um, you find a lot of people who are involved in biochemistry or yeast biology or things like that. Some of our best discoveries have been just on the basis of discovering the next thing or the next thing or the next thing or just wanting to learn about something. And now it's, it's, if it doesn't lead, lend itself to be translational, you're almost, you know, you're, it's almost uh, knocked down a few pegs. Mm -hmm. And I think that that aspect of discovery and understanding is just as important because somebody else in another field can take your discovery and then apply it to make it translational. Somebody else can, you know, in, in oncology, they can, the mathematician can take it and say, well, that makes sense, and now we have something translational. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like the field also to be a lot more, and it's getting this way, but a lot more collaborative. Um, we sequester ourselves in these little silos and these little pockets, and we don't understand that our body works as a system, and different systems interact with each other um, to a greater extent than we realize, and the microcosm mirrors the macrocosm. And so if we can understand that, and we can promote that, then, then we, can, we don't have to say that we're just academics or that they're just academics. You, you can make a foray into the entrepreneurial space and want to have a startup with the idea in mind that you're passing along and promoting something that you started in an academic space and now you're building it and you're fostering in a commercial space that can lead to the ultimate goal of helping people. We need to be more multi, multifaceted, yeah. more collaborative, and um, more supportive of different ideas. Okay. We had another potentially flippant question that was actually from the New World Brewery itself where we are this evening. Uh -huh. And um, on the basis of your picture, somebody said, is he single? <laughs> <laughs> of course, you don't have to answer such a personal question, but, you know, there you go. Right, 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 right. Well, you know, I, I, I definitely am single um, uh, by choice and not by choice. So, that's all I gotta say. <laughs> that's very cryptic. <laughs> and as a follow-on from that, Arturo said, "Would you ever date a PI?" I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> I kind of like the whole separation, uh, uh, separation from science type thing. So I wanna, I wanna be able to come and uh, explain my science, and you explain your business or your legal proceedings or something like that but who knows who knows what I may say that and then next thing I know a scientist or a PI walks through the door and I'm like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> well thanks again to uh, Ruan for coming out to speak to us and Arturo and Angela for joining us and of course to the New World Brewery for hosting us this evening um, our track on this podcast is from Mark Robertson Tessie, who actually happens to be a scientist at the Moffitt Cancer Center. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.
um, I was getting ready for a seminar, and seminar is, you know, if you don't know, seminar is like the ultimate way for people to judge you on your work, your research, your everything. And so one of the things that I love to do about seminars, I feel like if I look good, then I feel good. And so everything has to be great. Some people have to practice 10,000 times. Once I feel like I've practiced enough, I got it. Now I just want to make sure that I'm in a good space, I'm calm, and most importantly, like, I look good. It's like the only time you get to dress up in science. Uh-huh. I agree. <laughs> and um, I am ironing my shirt on the ironing board, and I got all the wrinkles out. I put on my shirt, and it's one of those shirts that has an arm tab that you hook, you, you pull out by your elbow and you hook it in. Well, my arm tab was still wrinkled, and not to be meticulous about it, but I, like I said, if you look good, you feel good. And I just didn't want anything wrinkled on me. But I also didn't want to take off my shirt. (laughs) So I put the arm tab on the ironing board and I ironed it. See, that's you thought you guys thought that I was gonna burn myself, right? No, 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 no. I put my arm tab and I ironed it perfectly, but there was still one wrinkle left in there. And I said, I can get this, but it's kind of far up, so how do I do it? Oh, I'll just press the steam button. And I press the steam button, and I'll never forget. I'll never forget that instance because there's a big triangular-shaped burn on my arm, and I wear it like the coolest scar ever. I made it through seminar, and I, I was rushing, but as I was talking in seminar, the burn cream was kind of creeping through my shirt. So now not only do I have this big burn, but I also look good and I don't feel good. Needless to say, it was the worst seminar that I ever did. I probably shouldn't be that shallow, but... listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at two scis facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in
Bahaba. Dr. Cox is in the building.